Booyah! <laughs>
every week and just, you know, if you were to survey them, do an MPS survey, whatever, they're like, this is an awesome product. That is step number one. And once you have that, instrument it so you can watch it closely. Like, don't, don't rely on like, yeah, the way we measure customer success is after a year, we see if they churn or not. <laughs> that's not a, that's a lagging indicator. We need to understand something within the first 30, 60, 90 days that we have confidence will correlate with long-term customer success so that as we continue to scale, we can keep an eye on it, right? So that's step number one. Step yeah. number two is- I have is, a question about that, yeah, that stage, actually. So how do you, how do you coach like the, you know, the companies that you advise, right? Or, or like even giving us a lesson, right? Uh, how do you, it's easy to say like, oh, this company's growing. We add more, like the reason people want to add more sales reps is because it means you can close more deals. You can grow faster. Like how do you balance that expectation with, you know, like you, you were talking about churn, like, you know, how do you, how do you manage like, Hey, we might grow slower, but we're going to get this right. I think it's, I think David's awesome at this. It's the same story of like, how do you manage an investor where you want to go through a proper product market fit journey before you actually scale? You know, I think, some investors are coming along to that way of thinking, and David has done a phenomenal job of setting expectations that, you know, we're going to grow in a healthy way. Um, and I think just, you know, it's, it's, it's education to the investors that this is necessary, and I think some of them have been burned enough that um, they'll hopefully be on board with that. You know, and you can do, it's not like you can just stop growing. It's just like I would never want to do something strategically that is going to get in the way of us finding great customer success. You can do other stuff. You can experiment with Facebook paid marketing. You can do content marketing. You can hire a couple reps in a quarter to do other things in parallel as long as they don't sacrifice how quickly you're getting to customer success. Mm. That's my opinion. Right? So then customer success, then unit economics. So at this point, we're comfortable with the retention and churn of the business, and now I need to pay attention to that it cost me $20,000 to put someone into the product where I'm only generating 5000 Right Now it matters. I don't care before. I think it's Paul Graham who says, do unscalable things early. Great. But now it's like I need to pay attention that the economics are healthy. And usually in SaaS, people talk about payback period of less than 12 months, an LTV to CAC ratio of greater than three, this is where the stuff starts to pay attention and like, you know, we got to really look at our sales execution, our demand generation execution, et cetera. If we look at that and instrument it and we're comfortable, now let's go after growth. And in a business like this, it's like, let's hire a rep a month and let's see how it goes. And if that goes well for a couple of months, let's hire two a month and keep a close eye on our customer success cohorts to make sure they're not going down as we expand our target market that we're on after and keep a close eye on our unit economics of payback and LTV to CAC and all that kind of stuff to make sure that you know, we're properly ramping and bringing on new people. So that's the framework I look at. And oh gosh, to this day, I still see so many organizations jumping to the growth stage. And 100% of the time I see that, it burns them. Not all the time, but the ones I see, it burns them in the end. You said you guys learned this at, at HubSpot? Like, is this the, the opposite? <laughs> tell, tell, tell that story a little bit. Yeah, so I, I, mean, I think the best way to just like when you, when yep. you tell stories like this is to say, like, yeah. here's how when it screwed abstract. us and here, here's totally. what happened. So, um, so I'll bring us back to like August of 2007. We had 10 people, maybe less at HubSpot, and maybe two or three salespeople and 100 customers. And so uh, we just needed customers. Like we just uh, we're talking about this inbound marketing thing doesn't work. We just need customers. So I wrote a very hunting oriented comp plan, which is basically like for every dollar of MRR you bring in, pay you two dollars. Right? You sign a five hundred dollar a month deal, you make a thousand dollar commission check. KK's over there like yeah, yeah. awesome <laughs> hunting plan, right? In fact, accelerator. Your quote is ten deals. If the 11th one, I'll pay you twice as much. Right? So you sign up. He's like, yeah, this is great, right? And slight protection on the churn. At, they have to pay for four months. Otherwise, we claw it back. So if they cancel after two months, we claw the whole commission back. If they pay for five or six months, it's yours. Okay, wait, can I ask you a question yep. about that? Like, would you actually like come to me and say, like, you take that, like, do you hold that money or it comes out no, of my you, future you get paycheck? it. It comes out of the future. For salespeople, it's hard. Like, there's, there's a debate as to how you manage these clawbacks. Yeah. But, uh, and, and I'm not sure. I don't have a strong opinion on that one. But I do think that like, 
um, in, when it comes to sales commissions, um, the reward or penalty for good or bad behavior has to be felt close to the good or bad behavior, yeah. right? So that's, that's why we did it this way. So this is a beautiful hunting plan. And we went from 100 to 1,000 customers in seven months. We went from maybe 200,000 ARR to like 3 million in like six or seven months. And what, what, was, the, what was the feeling? Like where, as it was everybody like, woo! This, Crazy. Yeah. Series B was a piece of cake. Everyone was chatting about us. Huge momentum in the market. Churn went from 4% a month to 6% a month to like 8% a month. So you're losing, uh, over the course of a year, you're basically losing all your customers. Yeah. All right, so, monthlies. Okay, so like we, so again, huge (laughs) hunting order plan. This is the beginning of SaaS, so no one even understood this stuff. But it's not a sustainable business, and so we're living through this, and we're making this mistake. We're certainly not following my customer success, then unit economics, then growth. Because during this period, I'm adding one rep a month. We went from two reps to like 10 reps during that period. Something like that, right? So what was surprising was we thought that the churn was a cause of either the product or the post-sale experience. So I actually looked at, I think we had maybe half a dozen customer success people at the time. So I, I measured the churn per customer success person, thinking, hey, maybe one of these people has it figured out. We can just figure out what they're doing and replicate it. Turned out the difference in churn was like nothing compared to all of them. Then I re-ran the analysis on like the dozen or so reps we had. Whew, huge difference. Some of the salespeople had really low churn, and some had just crazy churn. And in fact, that was kind of inversely correlated to their revenue production, right? So I was like, geez, this is a sales issue. This is all driven based on the customers our salespeople are choosing to go after and the expectations they're setting. In fact, what was funny was the churn rate in month one of a customer was really low. Month two, low. Three, four, low. Five is when it spiked. So I was like, wow, do reps really work their comp plan? I mean, I like randomly set the clawback at four months and it's just like... So like uh, you're best friends for four months and then the second that four month is over and you get paid. See you, Mark. Right. (laughs) So it's like, so that said to me like, okay, number one, this is a pre-sales issue. Number two, the comp plan will probably fix it. So... So that's when I stack ranked the reps. I shared the data we found and said, here's the top rankings, not from revenue production, but from LTV and churn, like retention. And I said, I'm going to start comping you based on this from here on out. And, and we did. Like, we changed the plan to basically, like, instead of getting $2 on the dollar, the top quartile got $4 on the dollar. So those that were selling good deals, we doubled their commission and then there was like a, a mix, and then the bottom quartile got like their commission got cut in half. And um, we went through rapid training on proper selling, and churn dropped by like sixty or seven percent, sixty or seventy percent in like six months. So we lived through this pain, yeah. and and from then on out, when we launched new businesses, whether it was enterprise, e-commerce, partner program, um, the sales business. I always put pressure on the directors that we assigned the business with this framework of customer success, unit economics, and growth because of that lesson learned. So, like looking back, so you think of a, I don't know, I guess a company closer to our stage or, you know, people that, that are going to listen and watch this later. Like you had 100 customers and went to 1,000 in, you know, six, seven months. Like that, that's your biggest takeaway is to like apply the same things that you had to apply at a thousand customers and learn the hard way to, to day one, basically. I wouldn't have hired the 12, the 10 reps during that time. I, we didn't even understand churn or customer success at the time. So I would, I would obsess over that, get to whatever you deem as scale. If it's an enterprise product, it's going to be dozens of customers. If it's more of a transactional S&B product, it's going to be hundreds of customers and prove, get comfort around customer success then move to unit economics, then move to growth. And see if you can't work on your overall capitalization structure and the expectations with your investors that this is your journey. Um, you're probably not going to get through each one of those phases in three months. Hopefully they don't take three years each. But like we want to yeah. be all on the, same, you know, on the same team here as to how we're going to navigate this. You could have, if you did it your way, it could have been 100 to 300 to 500 versus 100 to 1,000. But actually, exactly. you keep I, you keep the mic because I want to ask you. So, so you mentioned so you talk about customer success in the early days from a sales perspective, 
that's what you guys had to fix, right? But from DC, from your perspective, like how much, how much, so at, how much of churn is based on, is it sales? Is it the product? Like, and, and what's the relationship between say the VP of sales and the head of product at an earlier stage company to figure out like, are we building the right features? Is this working the right way versus like, are we selling to the wrong people? Yeah. Well, I think the simple answer is like, it's all right. It's both. <laughs> it's both. It's both. It's all. It's like, there is no distinction. It's like, how are we selling it? How are we marketing it? How are we talking about it? How are we setting expectations? How are we onboarding? What does the product do? What is it missing? Like it's all those things. And I think depending on the day would be some random different prioritization of that, of those things coming in. Right. And then tomorrow it'll be a different rank and next day it'll be different. It's constantly changing that way. Yeah, let, me, let me ask a follow up on that though, because this is my own education, because I feel like what I just talked about isn't talked about a lot. Nope. And a lot of entrepreneurs mess it up. You just told everybody to grow slower. Nobody wants to hear that. Yeah, in a way. Just, but, but product market fit has been a term around for a decade. And I feel like as, as, product, as, as technical entrepreneurs, we have grown much. We've, we've grown a lot from the perspective of product market fit. So I'm, that's the disconnect I have is like, what, I guess people are always asking, what is product market fit? Yeah. How do you know when you get there? And if we've grown as an, as an entrepreneurial community around that, what, is it different than the, the first phase of my framework of customer success? Like, what's the, what's yeah. the disconnect there? That's a good, good question. So, like, product market fit, like, at least probably a decade since it's been popularized. And it basically, Steve Blank talks about this customer discovery process and, like, how do you get to a point where you basically have found something that people are willing to pay for and enough people are willing to pay for it and then that that process is repeatable. And then you've hit this kind of idea of product market fit, which Mark Andreessen first used those terms kind of publicly. Uh, but I think, you know, I think one good thing that you bring up is like people look at it as like a static point in time, but it's not. It's like exactly what we were just talking about. It's like this continuous thing. Like product market fit is never finished. It's like you have a product market fit for a context. And that context is... Uh, a certain time and place in the market, right? So competitive dynamics there, what's available, uh, plus, you know, what's trending, you know, from a trend standpoint. Um, you have a certain product market fit for a certain uh, cohort of users that pay you, expect to pay you a certain amount of money. And as soon as you start to change some of those dimensions, like the market changes, competitors change, uh, the price that you want to charge changes or your persona changes because you want to go up market, then you're re reevaluating part of market fit almost every day. I think that, yeah, I think that that kind of puts things together for me a little bit with this is maybe we, although we've grown in product market fit understanding, we haven't appreciated how dynamic it is. And even we had Brian Belfour in this uh, last week at HBS, awesome growth marketer. And he kind of said the same thing around the students asked him, like, he's big on defining personas and doing a lot of customer interviews up front to understand your marketing channels and your growth marketing strategy. And they were like, how often do you just do this once and then you're done? He's like, no, it's continual, right? Because, you know, you can bring across in the chasm in a little bit, right? Your first set of, of customers, the early adopters, great. Once you move to the early majority, everything, a lot can change. And he, he kind of says, redo the persona analyses. And you're saying you've got to reevaluate product market fit. And I'm saying you got to make sure customer success is still strong. Absolutely. So it's that might be the pattern is like this is these are not static points. These are continual inspections that will will evolve. Yes, it's a three three dimensional thing, right? Like I think the crossing the chasm visual is good, which is the bell curve, right? Like so you're following the bell curve, but then the bell curve has to be applied against different times and points in the market, different sets of competitors, different markets that you're moving up and down throughout, right? Like and all of a sudden you have like I don't know how many, but n number of bell curves that you're chasing at, at once that you're trying to figure out. So the other thing that we want to talk about is um, kind of just like what's changed in the world of sales since you know 2007 and you know or even just whatever last two three years. The biggest things that you're seeing, the things that the things that are you know coming up, and what that means for companies like us or people that are listening, and you know how they're actually going to go out and start selling. So I think one important thing that that's important here is that Mark is one of the few people I know around in the world, probably, that have gone through this MQL playbook and has gone to the PQL playbook. Yeah. And so people have touched different parts explain of that. Explain that more for people that might not know what that is. So I'll let the expert explain it. But like <laughs> okay. he's gone from this world of 
the it's basically how much control does the buyer have? Uh, uh, starting with like the MKO playbook was highly effective in a world where buyers had more control, but not not as much control as we see today. And so that you could go through a marketing qualified lead process and the salesperson had more power. Now we're moving to PQL era where it's product qualified lead, where you're selling to people who may have more knowledge than the salesperson because they're active users of the product. So how do you sell in that? What, world? what are some good, uh, what's a good example of PQL model today? Uh, Slack is probably the one that everyone knows, uh, Evernote, Trello, like a lot of consumer type things look like this, but it's also in the enterprise as well. New Relic is another one, DocuSign. There's tons of stuff all over, up and down the stack. And then MQL playbooks, there are lots of those examples as well. Still there, but yeah. there's a shift, it seems to me. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I think the foundation for all of my observations that would probably fit into your what's changed recently is driven by buyer empowerment, right? Something that's been talked about by a lot of different people. We used to, as a buyer, if we wanted to research a product or buy something, we had to deal with a salesperson. We had to go up to the trade show booth. We had to call them up. We had to take the meeting just to figure out what it does. That has obviously changed. I mean, we can be in our bunny slippers on a Saturday night, like on Google, and figure out, like, what the product does, what the competitors do, how much they are. We can usually, to your point, try the product and sometimes buy it without a salesperson. Can I, can I tell you a quick story yeah. about this? Uh, earlier this week, I was trying to buy something like for Drift. Signed up, already put my credit card in as part of like the onboarding process. SaaS product. product, yep. Paid them $20 a month. Realized we needed more seats. So I went to click. I went to find like how, how do I just like upgrade on their website. I had to fill out. I was already a customer. I had to fill out a form. 48 hours later, I got a sales rep, a call from their sales rep like, hey, Dave, saw you trying to upgrade your account. How can I help you? Oh, I already canceled and moved on to – I hopped on KK's account, and so now we're just going to you know, free ride on that. So that's, that's a perfect example. Yeah. Is, yeah, I would say that's the kind of optimization of that new age sales process. But like, that's the biggest thing that I think we've only scraped the surface on how this changes sales, to your point, of – appreciating how today's empowered buyer who doesn't really think they need salespeople and how that impacts the salespeople we hire, how we train them, how we comp them, how we generate demand, right? So, um, you know, one of the things that I look at is like, you know, there was a great article even this week about um, if you think you want to hire that like aggressive salesperson, like that, that flies in the face of today's modern buyer preferences, and there's been some, you know, some data and some in individual hiring managers who've had more success with people who are curious um, and coachable and do a good job of our job is if, if all we're going to do is pitch what a prospect can read on our website, that adds zero value. Right? And that's really what a lot of selling was. Now it has to be understanding the unique context of that buyer and translating the generic information that's available online to that context. That's really hard for a buyer to do. You were buying this SaaS product in some random space. It's probably the first time you've looked into that space. Salespeople help people like you multiple times a day. Mm -hmm. They are an expert at understanding your unique needs. Right. All, all I wanted to do was ask somebody like, do I really need this if I'm going to do this? And like, just had faith that they would suggest the right plan to be exactly. on. Yeah. Right. That's it. As opposed to like, Hey, let me show you our 10 slide yeah. deck yeah. that like our CEO or our, yeah, our VP like of sales put together. Yeah. And then you're like, you're just like sitting there trying to figure out how does it match? And I, I'd criticize the buyers a little bit too here. Cause a lot of salespeople try to get on with the buyers and like, Hey dude, like enough with the questions. Just show me what you got. No, like, when I walk into it as a buyer, I'm just like, this is my issue. What else do you want to know about it? Like, that's how we should, that's how we should buy to help the salesperson out, help us. So it changes how we comp, how we hire these people, how we train them. You know, at the HubSpot, I, I, there's a big thing around, like, get the salespeople to walk in the buyer's shoes. For them to execute what I just talked about, they have to understand more than just what the product does. They got to understand the life of the buyer. So our salespeople always went through a month of writing a blog, building a social media following, doing email campaigns, write, creating landing pages, all for a, like a mini business they made up. 
and they could relate to that small business owner or that marketer when they were skeptical of whether blogging would work for them, how hard it was to rank on Google. They went through it. And so that's an example of how we need to train differently. And you know, to David's point, it changes how we generate demand as well because the better companies are not like contradicting or fighting this buyer empowerment. They're aligning themselves with it. It's, there's a lot less friction for a buyer to engage with your product. So let them do that. Feed into that. And then teach your reps how to sell or engage with someone who's already working with the product, i.e. a PQL, as opposed to the cold calling techniques yeah. or the ebook downloads or whatever. Are you looking at different things in this model? Like in the MQL model, you might say, oh, Mark is a VP of sales. His company has 1,000 employees. They're in this industry. This makes him a good fit. Whereas in the PQL model, you might look at more like, oh, Mark has done this many things and invited this many people yeah. and uploaded this many contacts. It doesn't really matter who you are personally. It changes some huge sort of folklore or best practices in sales, right? An example, call high. Call high. That's what everyone says in sales. Why would you ever deal with an end user who doesn't have budget? Call high. Call the CEO. That is challenged yeah. today. Right? It's like, and we've experimented with it and proven it, at least in context I've worked in, that it's not optimal. Right. You know, you call the CEO, the VP of sales, and you can say, like, the stuff that resonates with them, which is way different than the end user, but they have to convince the end user to adopt it and just look at like CIOs today they've gone from a world where they sat next to the CEO just trying to keep up with what technology they could buy to align with her strategic objectives to a world where they're just trying to keep up with what their employees are using and and tighten it up make it secure whatever and so who has more power in that like the CEO or the fact that one third of your company is already using this product right so so we've had a lot of success. In, you know, I've had a lot of success with different companies on like starting low, winning engagement, trying to figure out like how that first user is successful, how it goes a little viral through the organization, and then using that as your competitive advantage to win the power. Right. Right. Like if you just a quick like example, like compare Dropbox to Box, right? Like Box comes in with their you know really fancy suits and the big story that the CIO wants to hear about like geographic redundancy and all this fancy enterprise stuff. And Dropbox comes in and is like, 30,000 of your employees are already using our software. So like, which is, which yeah. one do you want to be there? But it, and so this is like the thing that you've meant, you started with this is comp plans, right? It's probably only this, that's like the selling strategy that works, but that probably only works. Like something DC says all the time is like aligning incentives, right? Like if the sales reps incentives are aligned, to start and grow, then that's different. Like, what, what, is, the, what is the new comp plan? Like, yeah, I mean, that's that... the second big one outside of call high. Yeah. What this challenges is the comp plans are, are, you know, traditionally designed to maximize the first revenue from a company. You're a salesperson. Your job is to open the door. That's the hardest thing. Get our foot in the door with this company. Sell a big deal. Mm -hmm. And that's what a comp plan is, is, is uh, aligned to do. That comp plan is perfectly in conflict with this new buyer journey. The whole opportunity is to reduce the friction to engage and to grow the account over time, the LTV. But we're rewarding our comp, we're rewarding our salespeople to maximize the first purchase and don't care about anything after. So it's like, that's what we, we did with the sales products at HubSpot. It was like, I told the guys, I'm like, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to comp you 10%, or it was 20% more for all the revenue we get after the first sale. And they were like, dude, that's so messed up. Like, you know what I'm going to do? If I have a 50 seat, if I have a 50 seat deal on the table, I'm only going to close one of them, one seat this month. And then I'm going to close the other 49 yeah. next month to work the comp plan. I was like, great. Well, because there's no way mm -hmm. that they're going to upgrade. Because like, I know that sales rep yeah. could sell the 50-seat yeah. deal. But then what if it doesn't work out? That's a huge churn. Mm -hmm. Versus if they sell the one seat and then they try to sell the other 49 a month later. If it's not going well, no one's upgrading it. The, the, and if it is going well, they'll upgrade it and it's a sticky account. 
Right. The rebuttal to every sales comp uh, discussion is like, you know what I'm going to do? In that case, I'm going to do this crazy exactly. thing, right? Like, exactly. I'm just going to sell $3 million deals and, and ignore everyone else. And it's like, awesome, sell $3 million you, deals. You have, to, you, have to look at, you have to look at your, when you're designing comp plan, one of the most important exercises is to put it together. Like, you put together your corporate strategy, you figure out how to align your reps with it, and then you take a step and be like, if I were to cheat this plan, how would I cheat it? It's a very, very important exercise to do. All the news on Wells Fargo in the last two months, like that just wasn't done well with, with their plan, and it like cost the company a lot. Yeah. So you've got to go through that and, and manage against it, because there's always a loophole in every plan. Mm-hmm. You know? All right, so uh, we'll, maybe we'll do questions in a second or something. Yeah. Go ahead, uh, un- Uncle DC, please. Sure, I have a question. So you've gone through the MQL era into the new PQL era, but in both cases you had sales reps. How do you now look at this world where you hear rumors of whether it's Slack or Atlassian or other companies that are moving claim that they don't have salespeople or other people who are saying they're moving to kind of salesperson-free world? How do you think about that? You know, it, like I, I'm not like defensive about it. Like I, if, if my field goes away, I have other things I can do. <laughs> like I seriously, but I, but I am skeptical. Yeah. Um, you know, I've, good friends with Jay over at Lassian and like spend time over mm-hmm. there. And I'm like, and they, I think it's a branding thing, honestly, yeah. with a lot of those companies. Yeah. Cause I'm like, Oh, who's that person over there on the phone talking about contracts and price? Oh, that's customer support. Yeah. Why is there one guy in a suit at your company? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I think it's, I think it's noble and I think it's a great branding. Um, but I do question, you know, w- whether we rename it sales, maybe that's the problem. I think, um, like, the, if you ran an experiment of just completely humanless, just allow people to figure it out, versus introducing a person. Let's not even talk to call them a salesperson. But it's just someone that reaches out when someone gets stuck to understand why they're stuck and to help them. And then to close the deal, like to, to convert it to revenue. I just think in a lot of those companies that experiment would yield that throwing humans at certain situations sure. would be a, high, like a positive ROI thing. So I think it's great branding. I think it's noble to like move the field to where we need to move it. But I also think that latter context exists. Cool. Anybody got questions? Yeah. Sure. So, um, to re- want to repeat. So, yeah, so at it. HubSpot, when we first figured like launched customer success, like what were the crucial things that we learned about it? Um, I think this one still exists as an issue with um, some of these organizations that are moving out. Is we focused our efforts on the people who were about to churn. We hired like six, ten people, and was just like, okay, here is an identification that these, these folks are going to churn and just spent a lot of effort there. And after some experimentation, we realized that that was kind of lost cause. It was sort of too late. And we found tremendous value from instead implementing sort of a proactive um, engagement strategy with our customer success team, right? So um, like having that three or six month check-in, um, like... Uh, having things that put, as opposed to like you know the mid, like within a week of usage drop offs or two weeks of usage drop offs to engage then um, that that served to be a much more um, uh, you know a higher ROI value from our customer success folks. So again, it's like it's just natural to like oh customer success like ooh like it has, like churns crazy right now. Just let's just you know figure out the people who are at the biggest risk and focus on them. I would challenge that and say. Instead, think about a, a proactive model, and you almost have to look at those people as like a sunk cost in a way. You know? yeah. Any other questions? Sure. Yeah, so experimentation is an enormous, I think, entrepreneurial you know, philosophy that the great companies have these days, especially in this whole data, big data explosion. Like we've 
have so much data at our fingertips, especially in the go-to-market funnel, that it's a shame not to experiment with this stuff. Um, just we have a lot to learn from the basics of the scientific method that it's like, oh, yeah, well, of course, but like people just don't do it. Yeah. You know, it's like, number one, be really precise around what success means. Like quantify, like we're going to run this experiment. What is success and failure? And d- define that in advance so that we just, we just know and don't lose sight of it. Number two, be really precise around not contaminating the experiment. This, you know, experiment like mm-hmm. control groups, et cetera. So we actually do um, learn. And then number three, when, you know, I like to have sort of like an experiment um, funnel in a way. Like you can't run, you know, with 20, 30 people in a room, you can't run 50 experiments at a time. But you probably have 50 ideas right now. So which ones do you choose to do? Be aware of the speed by which learning um, comes out. Like if, if I, I, I told you about an experiment that, would create a 10% lift potential in your sales funnel and would take a year to learn, that's not as appealing as something that could literally double productivity and we'll know in two months, right? So you've got to look at it from the lens of how rapid the, the learning can come. Okay. I have a question. So one thing that you touched upon there but we didn't go into was like kind of your approach to experimentation, specifically sales and marketing experiments. And I think that was an interesting discipline that I had not seen before in working with you. And if you could just talk about how you evaluated each of those experiments, how you thought about experiments and investing in those, that'd be great. Yeah. I mean, um, you'd be surprised. Like one of the philosophies I teach at Harvard actually is, um, Sales compared to any other function is arguably the most quant- like success mm-hmm. and failure is the most quantifiable, right? It's really hard to look on across an engineering team and be like, that's our best engineer by 7%. You know, like, mm-hmm. it's hard to do. What is lines of code, like adoption of your features? Like, in sales, you can't get it perfect, but you can get damn close. Yeah. That is our best salesperson by 7%. And so it's a shame to not leverage that sort of um, context in everything you do in sales, right? Hiring is a great example around experimentation. Every sales context, in my opinion, is very different. And the ideal hire for each one, like the ideal hire here is different than the ideal hire at HubSpot, which is different than the ideal hire at Slack, Mm -hmm. which is different than the ideal hire at Genzyme, right? Like they're just different contexts. And so... um, that's an area of experimentation is like if you can be precise around the characteristics of the people you're evaluating and quantify um, how, you know, how you measure those things and over time start drawing correlations between your metrics quantifiable evaluation of someone and their quantifiable success or failure, you start to build like a hiring formula. And that same model can be applied to training you're giving people tests after training to see if that correlates it can be a hired, applied to coaching and the progress they make on connect rates and opportunity conversion so you know i think that's that's the you know to have that experimentation culture the underlying piece for me is sales success and failure is so much more quantifiable than any other discipline mm-hmm. so we talk a lot about interviewing and hiring especially on the podcast uh but there's been a few people that I've seen interview as many people as you have who most of them come out a little shooken up about your questions. So how do you, tell me about how you approach hiring. Cause so I they, think you, they're, I th- they're shaken up about my advice. It doesn't quite, no, work. no, no, no. About, about uh, the tough questions that you ask in the interview process. Oh yeah. <laughs> so tell me about yeah. how you, you approach the interview process. <clears throat> yeah. So, I mean, my, the biggest one, for me is okay i'll do the whole interview um really quick uh interview the interview yeah the interview starts you know the interview starts when i meet you in the hallway right and it's not like it's i'm gonna cut you off at this point but it's a huge opportunity for you to win which is do you know anything about me you know like if you don't not you know just you should research who you're interviewing with Mm -hmm. and know a little bit about them and also is it me kind of breaking the ice or are you breaking the ice and asking questions like that's a huge opportunity around their preparation and their curiosity right? uh, their that cuts 80 <laughs> percent my experience it's not, 
It's not a showstopper, but like in an outside environment, it would be close to a showstopper mm-hmm. for me. And inside, I can deal with it because it's not as much as the context that they're selling in. Then I break the ice and like, why are you interested in this company? Where do you want to be in five years? All that kind of stuff, which is interesting to make sure we're aligned with their, their you know, where they want to go. Then I ask them a little bit about their prior success. Like, hey, you're at, you're at Oracle and you're an account executive. Where do you rank? Is that based on bookings or revenue? And then the biggest thing for me is the role play. And I'm amazed at how few sales hires actually do role plays. It's just like, it tells me so much. So, and I do the role play on our environment. Right? So, hey, I'm, you're going to be a salesperson at Drift. I'm going to be um, a, you know, a VP of sales at a security company. And I just, I just um, entered into a free trial. You know, like, go. Right? So... I watch how they do, and if they if they show you know if they do the show up and throw up, mm-hmm. and basically mm-hmm. spend five minutes telling me everything they memorized on our website, it's not over. But like they have a lot of work to do on their natural curiosity and consultative selling model, versus if they ask me great questions about why I entered the trial and what I'm trying to accomplish, and then that's really great. And then I I try to like um, school them on. Um, domain knowledge that they hopefully would have learned. Like in the HubSpot environment, I would just, how do you rank in Google? How does that work? And I keep asking questions until they're stumped, mm-hmm. right? And the longer you go, the better you've done in terms of your research, and then I can see how they react when they're stumped. Yep. Mm-hmm. You know, if they can remain confident and, and hold their own, or even just say, like, I'm not sure about that, let me check, that's great. But if they, like, fall off their chair and, like, oh, I'm failing, you know, it's, like, not, you know, that's, that's, that's tough. And then I stop the role play, and this is my most favorite part. I'll just say, okay, how do you think you did? Have them self-assess. Now mm-hmm. I'm testing their coachability. Mm-hmm. And if they're like, oh, I was awesome, <laughs> like I'm not, I'm not that psyched about that. See, but I'm, if how few people will pass this. Yeah, but if they're like, you know, this is what I did well, this is what I would do better, that's great. And then I coach them. I say, hey, listen, I, I always give one piece of positive feedback and one piece of need for improvement because I, I don't want them to like lose their confidence. Like, mm-hmm. so, and then I coach them and I see, are they glassy eyed or are they taking notes? And then I have them redo the role play. So, so the role play is so critical to me and they all fail the role play the second time. Like, cause they're just like, the stuff's going through their head. They're in a high pressure environment, but the, um, the effort they make and how they're receptive is, is a big tell for me. And also like, gosh, if I, sometimes I actually, see improvement mm-hmm. in the second role play, that's pretty cool, pretty good. man. Yeah, yeah. Like if, if you spent 10 minutes coaching a salesperson on a critical motion that will lead to success and they improved, like what is it going to be like after a day, a week, mm-hmm. a month with that person? They're just, that's pretty cool. Yeah. You know? One definition there. What did you mean by glassy eyed? Just like, you know, they're, they're like, you're, you're coaching them on a need for improvement and they're just like asleep. They're just like not absorbing it. That's you know? awesome. So, we talk about that a lot, but most people know, don't get it. They're like, what does that mean? Just look at their eyes. Yeah. They're yeah, asleep. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> How receptive they are. That is awesome. Any other questions? All right. What do you generally see works best? Is that like a customer success role that does the upgrades? Is that a sales role? Like every company sort of does it differently. Yeah. What is have you seen? The question was from Kevin. He asked, when you go into kind of PQL model where you bring someone in for a low price point, let's say fifty bucks a month, and uh, you want to grow that over time, who's best to handle the growth of that account? Is it the initial sales rep? Is it customer success? Is it some combo of the two? It's highly circumstantial, and I think it's usually a, com- <clears throat> a combo. <clears throat> I will tell you that the mistake that most people make is they put, through the comp plan or the rules, they put those two people at odds with each other. You know, so, like, listen, you're going to, if they upgrade in the first 60 days, the salesperson will get the credit, but after that, the customer success person will get the credit. That's putting them at odds with each other. The customer success person's like, ah, maybe I'll wait to call them. You know? mm-hmm. And the sales rep's like, oh, geez, I hope they... And like, God forbid they upgrade in the 61st First day. day. Yep. The salesperson's like, oh, that sucked. I worked so hard. It took me a year to get that account. Mm-hmm. And then this guy made all this money on it. Mm-hmm. Um, so 
there's ways to figure out the financial engineering of the business to like it's not double comping, but it's just a shared comp. It's shared in the up um, the um, upsell on that, and then in a way you can almost let them figure it out. Like if they're, I really like the models of um, not having a marketing team and a sales team and a customer success team, but having these smaller cross-functional pods mm-hmm. of like one or two BDRs, a couple account executives, and one or two CSMs that are working together and yep. all the accounts are shared. Love it. And you can have like a blueprint around like what your different roles are, but as long as they're sitting together, they have a relationship, and their comp is set up to be aligned, they'll figure it on their own. Mm-hmm. And, and usually it's like if, if the expansion requires what we perceive as complex sales um, tactics, um, worming through the organizations, politics, um, getting to champions, getting to power. These are typically things that CSMs might struggle with, mm-hmm. and that's where the salesperson wants to be more involved versus if they're trivial and uh, it happens more naturally and it's really just around proving success and then asking for expansion then those hunting skills are probably better spent on new customer acquisition and the CSSM can handle it. But that's the big thing is making sure you set up your org design and comp structure so that the, those people are playing on the same team. Awesome. Luke, you had a question? Yeah, I was wondering how you think like premium integrates and all this stuff. Mm-hmm. Like, is it something that salespeople aren't even thinking about? It's all about marketing or maybe you're doing outbound sales stuff and you're talking to someone it's like, this person makes sense in a premium, maybe I can like plant the seed to read later. Like, how do you form a call structure on that? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> yeah, so go, you. Yeah, so longer, longer question from Luke. It has to do about freemium and how does it relate to the sales rep and do they yeah. think about the freemium at all or do they consider that in their process? I think, I think it's a big overlap with some of the questions we talked about around, you know, um, it's a perfect representation of lower buyer friction. Right, freemium is like the extreme of that, of just allowing people to like permanently forever use this stuff for free. And once they hit certain thresholds to upgrade, we call it sort of an adopt before buy philosophy. You know, usually the customer, the, the, the salesperson was, okay, you're all excited. Now you have to buy it. Then I'll let you use it. Mm-hmm. Right. And it, it reverses that. And, it, you know, I think it should be embraced by sales teams. I think. Sometimes when things aren't set up properly, when sales reps aren't trained properly, um, uh, when they're not comp properly, those things could fly um, in, you know, it can contradict. And you'll see that when salespeople are like, try, like, can we just hide the free trial button? Can we like, you know, it's like, yeah. or like, yeah, they're trying to, they're, they're doing sales training on how to like convince people that they don't need a trial. They, don't, they shouldn't start with the freemium product. Mm-hmm. It's just the system's not working there. Um, so I think it's a lot of the stuff we, we talked about, which is to, to compensate the reps more for the follow-on success and revenue expansion than for the first deal. If you do that, they're going to love freemium. And, and they'll learn it. And, then, and they'll learn in the same way that, like, go back to the old cold calling world. Like, you, you started to develop a sense of who, what were the perfect fit companies and the perfect fit roles that a cold call was worthwhile to. And you started to develop a sense of like who wasn't worthwhile because of budget or authority or whatever. That same kind of lens can be applied to freemium, but in a slightly different way. It's like you start to figure out like which of these users are really good fit in aggregate and that are worth my time to help them embrace the product. And it's almost like we've replaced the whole like open the door, do a discovery, a qualifying call, get that meeting, set up the demo, talk to the CEO and, and close it with a motion that's more like talk to the end user, get them to love the product, get them to tell their neighbor, get them to love the product, and then go to the CEO with like, hey, your team loves this, right? So it's, but they have to have that same qualification lens of like if you're talking to like a part-time business in a garage, you probably won't invest that time. But if you're talking to like a hot SaaS company that's doubling their re- employee base every every quarter, then you probably want to engage with those folks. Awesome. Last question, Will. When you talk about figuring out, originally you said the, the number of people who love your product—that's like eighty, ninety percent, or whatever the, the number is—that that's how do you quantify that? Right? Is it, do you need a certain number of customers to look at people who churn versus not, and you come up with thresholds, or how do you make that more? actionable other than someone looking at 
the customer or set of staff and say, feels good? Yeah. I think it, um, it's a tough question early. Um, I think you've got to do a little of this early. But in the, in the more long term, it comes back down to like what an acceptable churn is for your business model. Um, you know, in a lot of cases, eventually you've got to get to what they call negative revenue churn mm-hmm. in a SaaS business. So um, you don't need to be there even in like the $50 million journey. I would say like if you're flirting with like 1% or so, mm-hmm. like you're, you're in good shape. But that's going to be the end um, outcome for you. And then what happens is, again, churn, the danger of churn is not only one of the most important, one of the most important um, metrics for these businesses these days, but it's also a lagging indicator and so, somewhat of a silent killer. Mm-hmm. So you've got to develop comfort around a leading indicator that you know about within the first 30, 60, 90 days of a customer life cycle that you have confidence will correlate with whatever churn you're solving for. Okay, so I'll give you a specific example. In HubSpot, the marketing product years ago, um, the correlation for us was the product was pretty broad. There's probably 17 different features that you could actually use from the analytics system to the blog to the social media tracking tool, et cetera. We found that if someone used five of those features within the first 90 days of their customer life cycle, that that correlated with really great retention. And if they didn't, it correlated with poor retention. So that was a great example of a very tangible metric. It's hard to tell an, an IMC, a, um, a customer success team, get churn below 1%. Like it's hard to just feel that. It's better to say, it's, it's, it's more tactical to say, get all of your customers using five apps within the first 90 days. Mm-hmm. And so we'd done that analysis, and now that was a really nice short-term goal that we could rally around. And because we had you know, grown and scaled, we had, we had statistical confidence that if we did that, the, the lagging indicator would be there for us. So it's a, it's a little bit of this. Maybe it's something like usage in the first 60 days or something like that. And then over time, make sure you validate that your theory was correct. Awesome. Well, join me in thanking Mark for coming by. Thanks, Dave.